0: And you may be seated. Thank you, team. Beautiful. I believe the wait is over. Thank you, Ian. As the children and our students make their way downstairs. Good morning, church. How's everybody? Um, During these 90-degree October days, Who's ready for fall? Man, I am. I really am. Uh, normally, by now, at least you can feel it in the air, but uh, that's not so much the case uh, here, here this week. And we're going to start a new series today, one that I am really excited about, really looking forward to. Um, we're going to be moving through one of the most popular books in the Bible, Habakkuk. Just say that three times real fast. Um, how many of you just just spent a lot of time in Habakkuk uh, in your devotional hours, Robert? I thought so. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, you know I was I was thinking about that uh, this week. I'm thinking you know nobody is really ever in Habakkuk, and then I was having dinner with uh, somebody in the church on uh, on Friday night, and they said, you know, Habakkuk was in my devotional this morning, and I said, you're kidding me, right? And I was trying to pin him down. I said, what chapter? And he went on to give me chapter and verse and the whole thing. So uh, it is not entirely unfamiliar. Um, so we're going to be moving through the, back, the book of Habakkuk over the next few weeks. Uh, it is located at the very end of the Old Testament. So um, if you turn in your Old Testament, go to the very last book of the Old Testament, um, Malachi, I believe it is, take a left and, uh, and Habakkuk uh, has two neighbors. They are Nahum and Zephaniah. So that's a good way to find uh, Habakkuk. It is literally in the last 32nd of an inch of your Old Testament. Um, it is only three chapters, just three chapters. So it's a quick and easy read. And I want to challenge you, as I did in the newsletter last week, to uh, to go ahead and begin reading through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, have you ever had something happen in your life or Gosh, you just looked around at the state of the world today, and you just thought, really, God? How did we get here? What is going on? How could you allow this to happen to me? How could you allow this to happen to a loved one or or, or to our nation as a whole? God, I know as we have been singing, Lord, I know that you're all loving. I know that you are omnipotent, that you're all powerful. I know, Lord, that you are perfectly just. But I just don't understand how what I'm experiencing right now can be reconciled with those traits. How do we respond when God just doesn't seem to make sense, when tragedy strikes the innocent, when the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to suffer, when the pieces of the puzzle from our perspective just don't fit. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. We'll be focused on how to respond when God doesn't make sense. How many of you have been there? Man, I know I have. And I'm sure some of you are there right now. You know, you're in a season of questioning. You're in a season of doubt. Habakkuk was in just such a place when he wrote these three chapters. These raw and riveting words that we find at the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk was one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. They're referred to as minor prophets not because of their significance or because of their contribution, but simply because their books are shorter than the major prophets. Did you guys know that? That's true. They're the minor prophets not because they're not as important as the Ezekiels and the Jeremias and the Daniels and the Isaias, but simply because these 12 prophets' books are not as long as the major prophets' books. Our primary focus during this series will begin today with struggle and doubt. It will move to an acknowledgment of God's sovereignty and ultimately conclude with a hope that only God Himself can provide. We don't know a lot about Habakkuk, the prophet, only that he served in the court of King Jehoahim in the southern kingdom of Judah around 600 BC. So you can get your place on the timeline. He was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, of Daniel. And of Ezekiel. So if you read those books. What you read from Jeremiah. Who was, who was known as the weeping prophet. What you read from Daniel. Who has all of these just amazing revelations. And what you read from Jeremiah and Daniel. Were happening at the same time that Habakkuk wrote this book. During his tenure. The leaders of Judah. The southern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, had already fallen to Assyria. But the leaders of Judah had become corrupt while Habakkuk was serving as prophet. Justice was nowhere to be found in the kingdom. Violence, cruelty, crime, and lust were the order of the day. Anarchy essentially prevailed. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? In other words, Habakkuk was called to be the mouthpiece of God during a time when the entire nation was turning its back on God. It's a tough place to be. But that was a prophet's job. Also, during his tenure, the Babylonians rose out of nowhere, or so it would seem, to conquer the Assyrians and the Egyptians who were the world powers of the day the babylonians became the dominant world power and would soon be knocking on judah's door with the faith and morality of his own nation crumbling around him and a brutal horde moving toward him habakkuk in a real and raw moment looks to the heavens and essentially says really god really I've served you. I've been faithful to you. I've done all that you've asked me to do. I have prayed my heart out, God. And this is how you respond. Ever been there? It's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to stay. Take a look at Habakkuk chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 and that just sets the stage for these these words from the prophet it's interesting to note the very first verse of the book says this the prophecy some translations say the oracle or the burden the prophecy that habakkuk the prophet what received Okay, These are words that are rising from Habakkuk's heart. They're coming off Habakkuk's lips. But he is a prophet. He is a mouthpiece for the God of Israel. And it is God himself who placed these words on his heart to be a message for the entire nation. So don't forget that. Don't miss that. This is not just Habakkuk. Wailing and crying, God has brought him to this place and even brought these words to his lips. Habakkuk's complaint, he says this, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Why don't you intervene, God, in this mess? We've all thought that before. Destruction and violence are before me. It was a very violent culture. There is strife and conflict abounds. Sounds like the 6 o'clock news, doesn't it? Therefore, listen to this. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails the wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted man habakkuk was at the end of his rope he'd had all he could take and he couldn't take it no more but interestingly enough again it was god who initiated this complaint In the prophet, it was God who put it on his heart and gave him permission to be completely honest about the burden that he had. One of the most important things we can draw from this book is just that, and it is the need to be honest to God. To be honest to God. He's big enough to handle it, God's got broad shoulders. We're not going to hurt his feelings. As a matter of fact, he's the one who bubbled up this burden in the heart of Habakkuk. This prophecy that he received from God was not primarily for him, but it was for the people of Jerusalem and Judah. He was God's mouthpiece to convey this truth, a very difficult truth. We see this same kind of raw emotion, this same kind of honesty in a section of the Scripture that you're probably much more familiar with. The writings of King David in the Psalms. David goes this route time and time again. In Psalm 6, David says this. He says, "O oh Lord, how long? How long? Since when he's being pursued by King Saul and his friends have turned against him. Lord, how long? Where are you asking that question today? God, how long am I going to have to wait? I'm waiting here for you, Lord. How long? We don't wait well. David says in Psalm 10, Why do you hide in times of trouble? Why do you hide, Lord, when I'm in trouble? When my heart is aching, when I'm hurting? Why does it feel like you're nowhere to be found? Why can I not hear your voice? Why don't you intervene, Lord? Really, God? Where are you? God welcomes your questions. He even initiates them in you so that you'll grow closer to Him so that you'll trust Him, so that you'll pursue Him, even in the midst of darkness, even in circumstances that are contrary, it almost seems, to His character. Where do you need to cry out to God today? Where do you need to be honest about your doubts and your fears? Maybe you've experienced loss, maybe you've experienced pain, And you feel like God should have shown up, but He didn't. And in your heart of hearts, you're just angry. You're just angry. And it's affecting absolutely every aspect of your life. It's affecting every relationship that you have. And it's impossible, even though you may think you can it's impossible to hide when we're angry at God. Be honest to God. Begin there. Be honest to God. He's big enough to handle it. Never stop crying out. Never stop telling Him it doesn't make sense. Don't stop telling Him you're hurting and your heart is breaking. Don't let that anger take root and turn to bitterness. Lest the enemy rejoice. Everything around Habakkuk was falling apart. Or as my daddy used to say, it was going to what? Hell in a handbasket. Thank you, Ron. I thought you might jump on that Corruption. Imagine that. At the highest levels. Division. No. Oh. Conflict. He says the law itself seemed paralyzed and justice no longer prevailed. Strangely familiar. People deciding that the rule of law and long-held moral truth no longer applies. That's what was going on. 2,600 years ago, as Solomon said, there's nothing new, what? Under the sun. And we see this played out fully in Judah. And we're about to see God's response to it. Remember, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. He is the God, the only God, the eternal God, the creator of all. And the Lord answers Habakkuk. Not with the comfort that Habakkuk was looking for. Actually, if Habakkuk thought things were bad then, Wait till he hears what God has to say. So he lays his heart out to God. And this is the Lord's answer. It starts off really good. I mean, it almost, you know, it's like, man, he's going to do something awesome right here. Well, he is. It says, says, God says to Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. It's like, man, there is a miracle on the way says, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not even believe. Even if you were told, Habakkuk's like, bring it on, baby. Yeah, I'm ready for it, Lord. Give me that miracle. He says, well, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Well, what are you going to do with them? They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. They were a vicious and vile people bent on destruction, pain, and devastation. And they had swept across that part of the world demonstrating that. He says they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote only their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk as Habakkuk's eyes are just getting bigger and bigger. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and they scoff at rulers. They had just defeated Pharaoh Niko in the battle of uh, Carchemish, I believe it is, uh, to take Egypt. And nobody thought that Egypt could fall. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their god. Man, Habakkuk's—I like, really got. Whoa! I just poured out my heart to you. You're supposed to tell me how you're going to fix my problem. Amen. God, I mean, we would. Isn't that our expectation? And if I'm going to just lay it down here, if I'm going to cry, if I'm going to wave God, if I'm, going to do, if I'm going to do all this, you're obliged to fix my problem. Or you're not the God I thought you were. What we see here disturbs us. It disturbs me. Not just for Habakkuk, but when we experience it in our own lives. When God's big picture doesn't fit into our little frame. But think about it. For true justice to prevail, judgment must occur. Think about it. The gavel must fall. For true justice to be true, to be part of, and to be perfect, there must be a gavel that falls. There must be judgment. There is no justice without judgment. God's people had become corrupt. They had turned their back on God and now they would suffer the consequences. He had been warning them of this for centuries. You go all the way back to the the book of Deuteronomy and you see God's warning and prophecy begin about this very thing. Sometimes God has to take a situation from bad to worse to make it better again. And that's what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is all about. And that's where God's justice met His perfect love on the cross. And that's where God's judgment of us was satisfied once and for all. We need not fear. God is working off of an eternal script. He sees the end from the beginning. We see the play one scene at a time in our lives. And without that eternal perspective, many of those scenes simply do not make sense to us. So we shake our fist and we say, really, God? As God told Isaiah in his own confusion, he said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God does not exist for us. We exist by Him and we exist for Him. He does not exist to fix all of our problems and to give us an easy ride. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the human spirit will not even try to surrender self-will, the flesh, as long as all seems well with it. But what is our biggest prayer God, may it go well with me. May everything be fixed. May it be a smooth ride. But we will never surrender our selfishness and our own will as long as everything is going well. Easy rides make for selfish lives. It's not a popular message in the North Fulton bubble. As Jeremiah prophesied, God's people in Judah refused to change their ways, refused to return to Him, refused to surrender their will to His, and in doing so, they suffered the consequences. And we get upset with God when we suffer, when we're in pain, when we don't understand why things are happening the way they are. But God always has a purpose in our pain. Don't forget that. God never wastes a hurt Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, psychiatrist, she was the author of The Five Stages of Grief, she put it this way, listen to this, she said, the most beautiful people are those who have known defeat, they've known suffering, they've known struggle, they've known loss, and they have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving, concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. Bitter people do. We don't drift into Christ-likeness. We drift into bitterness. God creates beautiful people as they walk by faith and not by sight, regardless of the circumstances. As they trust Him, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of circumstances they do not understand, God makes us beautiful when we're willing to move forward, as Habakkuk did, in faith. Listen to this, verse 12. God lays that out for Habakkuk, and He says, Oh, Lord! Oh Lord, you're my Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting, declaring the eternal nature of God? My God, my God, he says, my holy one, you're still my God. We will not die. All who are in Christ can echo those same words. Oh Lord, he says again, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O oh, rock, You have ordained them to punish. Habakkuk moves forward in faith. And regardless of the surrounding storm, Habakkuk decides to move forward in faith. And he decides clearly to seek shelter in the Lord. And we are called to do the very same thing. Where do you need to do that this morning? Regardless of what's going on around you. Where do you need to take shelter in the Lord and simply trust Him? I've asked Paul Tucker to to come this morning. Paul, if you'll come on up and share his testimony of how he's found shelter in the Lord and some of the challenges that he's faced along the way. There you go, brother. Absolutely.
1: Good morning, everybody. I think uh, some of you I know, some of you I don't know. For those of you who do know me... You probably understand that I like to talk a lot. For those of you who don't know me, by the time I finish my testimony, you'll understand that I do talk a lot. So, uh, as Phil said, he asked me to share my journey uh, that led me to be a believer and also to share with you some of the things that I've had to overcome in my life, in my past, and in my present situation. So I'd like to start by uh, talking a little bit about my faith journey and where it began. So I started my faith journey way back when, on the day that I was born. Uh, I was born into a Catholic family, so I was considered a quote-unquote cradle Catholic, and I think a lot of you probably can empathize with that. As I grew, my parents sent me to Catholic school, where I spent the first 10 years of my education. But back in the 1960s, when I was educated, schools weren't like they are now, and families weren't like they are now either. At least mine wasn't. We had a really big secret fact of the matter was my dad was an alcoholic. We went to church every single Sunday. We sat in the second pew on the right side. That was our pew. Nobody ever dared sit in it but us. Everyone thought we were a great family. My dad, as I said, was an alcoholic. No one knew that dad had just come home from an all-nighter with his buddies at 6 a.m., slept for a couple of hours, got us all together, and then took us to church. So like I said, we looked like the perfect family. But unfortunately, there was lots of turmoil in our house, lots of yelling, lots of conflict. I shied away from everything just so I wouldn't get the wrath of dad's anger. Then there was school. Back then, all of my teachers were nuns and they thought nothing of capital punishment in the classroom. I was always getting hit and yelled at at school and at home. And when you grow up in that kind of situation, you just have to think that this is normal. This is not abnormal. Everybody must go through this. Uh, when I should have been learning about God, uh, I was rather learning about how to survive. I viewed God really as something bad, because wherever religion and faith went, anger and hurt followed. Despite all that turmoil, I continued to be a practicing Catholic, and I'm not really sure why. I know now now why. Back then, I didn't know why. I continued to be a practicing Catholic for almost my entire adult life. I went to church every Sunday. My wife and I were on what I called the God Squad. We did everything we could possibly do in the, in the church. I was on parish council. Uh, I was the head of the communications committee. I chaired the fundraising committee. I sang in the choir. And it was, I think I was looking for things to fill my heart. And, and there was, was an empty place in there for God, but I just still didn't know who God was. Or where to find God? Uh, I had my first God moment, as I call it, when I was about 46 years old, and that's quite a long time to go from when you're born and going to Catholic school, and you're six or seven years old, to a 46-year-old grown man. I was sitting in church at Mass, uh, and I was a member of the choir at the time. I was a cantor, and I was dressed in my full regalia of robes. And I sat there waiting for mass to start. And I just, I was looking around and I was thinking to myself, there's just something weird about this. Uh, It didn't seem like people were interacting. It didn't seem like people were talking to each other. It just seemed like people were angry. And then I looked and I was watching some folks, if you're familiar with the Catholic church, they've got statues everywhere. And There were some candles that people were lighting in front of the statues. And I just was watching that for a while, and I thought, hmm, that's kind of bizarre. Why are people lighting candles and praying to a block of wood? It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, So I sat there, and I just kept thinking and thinking, and I wasn't really even paying attention to Mass. And then communion time came, and I was like, I don't think I can go. I don't think I can go to communion. There's something that's just not right. And I didn't go. And everybody in the choir was stepping over me, you know, trying to get by me, trying to figure out what's wrong with Paul, what's wrong with Paul. Well, there wasn't anything wrong with me. And I, I sat there and I couldn't figure out what was happening. It was like this feeling just came over me. Uh, I think it was the Holy Spirit, to be quite honest with you, trying to tell me something. At the time, I didn't know what it was. So, And that was 15 years ago. And I've been back to Mass once, and that was when my father passed away. Uh, and then I kind of floundered for quite a while, quite a long time. Uh, and then I met a guy. And uh, he and I became fast friends. And we hung out a lot. We ran together on the weekends. We went hiking and did a lot of fun things. And I knew him for about four months. And then he came clean with me, if you, if you will, and told me he was a Jehovah's Witness. And that intrigued me because... As a Catholic, I didn't really know anything about the Bible. We didn't study the Bible. We didn't talk about the Bible. We didn't quote Scripture. We didn't do anything like that. Maybe they do now. Back then, we didn't. So I uh, I was intrigued because my friends started talking about the Bible and talking about the Word of God and whatnot. So I started having these conversations with him and delving into the Bible because it was new and exciting for me. What I didn't realize is that It really really wasn't the word of God. It was their Bible. And although there may be some similarities, the basic premise just wasn't there. And it took me a while to realize that. And what kind of pushed me over the edge was uh, my second God moment, which was sitting in Kingdom Hall, listening to people going through the, the services that you go through in a Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall. Uh, And I noticed this guy sitting up in the corner all by himself. And so I said to my friend, what's up with that guy up there? It's like nobody around him or anything. And he said, uh, oh, he's been disfellowshipped. And I said, what is that? And he said, he's done something that is against the doctrine of our faith. So because of that, he's disfellowshipped. So nobody can speak to him until the elders decide that he is worthy to be spoken to again. His family couldn't speak to him. He couldn't speak to his family. It was just, maybe some of you have heard that, you know, how that works. That shocked me because I thought to myself, when somebody really needs something in their, you know, in their time of need and you shun them, it, it didn't make any sense. So that was my second God moment. Holy Spirit poured over me again, I guess. And at the end of that, uh, That uh, Kingdom Hall Service, I took my watchtower magazine, I took my friend's lapel, I put it in his his lapel pocket, and I said, I don't belong here. And I left. So now I'm floundering again. I'm thinking, you know, where is God? I I guess I can say, really, God, where are you? You know, when are you going to show me your face? You know, I, I don't know what to do with myself. And during that time period is when we started to experience some unfortunate uh, turmoil in my immediate family. My younger daughter was the victim of an assault. Uh, And I don't wish that on anybody because it's a devastating situation, not only for her, but it really affected the whole family. Uh, And it was, that, that was definitely a really God moment Shortly thereafter, my wife was diagnosed with lupus, systemic lupus. And some of you may know of that disease. Uh, It can be very debilitating. It can be terminal. So she's on medication for the rest of her life. Shortly thereafter, my older daughter was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So uh, I just kind of felt like every time I did this... Sorry, hope you guys can hear me. Every time I did this... God would drop something on my head. So I was afraid to, to look up any, anymore. And then, be all end all, I lost my job. So 17 years at Eastman Kodak Company, if you guys remember Kodak, which unfortunately isn't really in existence anymore. Uh, so that was devastating as well. So now I was in a situation where I had medical bills. Uh, I needed insurance. I needed money. And I had the opportunity, uh, a gentleman, a colleague that I know, had an opportunity out in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I wasn't planning on going to California, but they made it too good for me. So I went, simply because I needed the money and I needed the insurance. Uh, And when I got out there, uh, God really knew what he was doing by putting me out there. Because I had the opportunity to really spend time by myself. Not that I didn't obviously love my family. They weren't able to come along with me for a variety of different reasons, mostly doctors, to be quite honest with you, because all the doctors they went to were here. But uh, So I went out there. I was by myself, but I had the opportunity to really do a lot of introspection. And God moment number three, which really turned me into the believer that I am today. Uh, I was out for my Saturday afternoon run, uh, and I was running down Bernal Street in South San Jose, California, And there was a guy in front of a building struggling to put up a sign. And I was like, well, he needs some help, so I better go over and help him. So I stopped, and I went over, and I helped him pull out the sign. And the sign said, Welcome to Bernal Bible Church. And the gentleman was the pastor of the church. So we started to talk for a little while, and then he invited me to come to service. That was a Saturday afternoon. He invited me to come to service on uh a Sunday, which I did very welcoming. But for the first time in my life, I sat in a service where somebody actually unpacked the word and tried to help me understand how to apply that to my life. And I was very eager for that because for the longest time I was, if I can quote Psalm 69, verse three, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. I got to the point where I just didn't know where God was. And when Steve actually invited me into his church and I experienced that the first time, I thought to myself, gee, I think this could be the real thing. I think it could be. This is why God sent me to California so that I could understand this and I could actually finally have a relationship with God. The thing that Steve taught me that nobody ever taught me before was that I could have a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I had no idea that I could do that. He became my friend. He became my partner. He became my confidant. You know, and I'd spend time by myself just talking to God in my apartment. Uh, As luck would have it, after six years of flying back and forth across the country, uh, an opportunity came up for me to come back to Atlanta, which I jumped at. And uh, I'm here because I don't know if you guys know Marty and David Etchell. They were my next door neighbors and they basically suggested I come to uh, to tapestry and worship with you guys. Uh, But anyway, uh, one of the things that Steve did teach me and one of the scriptures that he quoted to me was from Jeremiah, which basically says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And that's one thing that I didn't know how to do. And what Steve taught me, what God taught me through Steve was that. All I had to do was open my heart and accept his grace because it was there and it was there for the taking. But I I didn't know that. And I had this very tortuous journey to get to that. Uh, So when I'm looking back on all the trials and tribulations that I've had, you know, as I mentioned them a a few minutes ago, uh, God, he didn't. Those were no surprise to God. God knew that those things were going to happen. And he put them in my path to get me to where I needed to be and to where I am today. And as a believer, I've still had things happen. Uh, my son-in-law was in a very, very traumatic accident. He had a car lift fall on his head. He had eight cranial fractures, 47 facial fractures. He was on a ventilator. He cardiac, he cardiac arrested. He was on a ventilator. Uh... He was kept in a a medically-induced coma because of brain swelling. He had three brain surgeries. uh, And everything lined up perfectly with God helping us through that situation. The uh, the best neurosurgeon that happened in Florida when he was on a job site, the best neurosurgeon happened to be finishing their shift at uh, the local trauma center. Uh, She stayed, and she effectively saved his life. If she wasn't there... God knows what would have happened. Uh, we couldn't find a bed for him. Uh, we were trying to get a bed in the Shepherd Center downtown here in Atlanta, which is very well known for uh, brain injuries. We couldn't get a bed, so we were going to have to put him into a nursing home because we he, we needed to get him permanent care of some sort. God found a bed. The day before he was supposed to go to the the nursing home, God found a bed for him. So... All this stuff lined up perfectly. And right now, he, he could walk through that door and you would never know that anything happened to him. So whenever, thing, whenever anybody tells me they don't believe in God, I tell them that story. Because there's no way that that could have not happened without God. So, and then my own personal situation. About a year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with a progressive neuromuscular disease. So it shook me quite a bit. I don't know what the future has in store for me, uh, but I know that it was no surprise. I know that God had that planned. I, I'm not a 100% sure why, but I know that he's got me in the palm of his hand and that he will get me where, wherever it is I need to go and what I need to do to get there. So, you know, as I look back on everything, I know it was not all for naught. And that all that had happened to me was, in fact, God's plan for me. It wasn't easy, but it got me to where I am today. If you can declare nothing over a situation, you can declare that God is faithful and his grace will sustain you, even through the darkest times, because nothing is a surprise to God. And the last thing I'd like to do is just leave with a a scripture from Romans uh, verse 5 uh, Romans 5 verse 3 to 5 not only so but we are also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our heart through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us thank you
0: Amen. amen Man, what a what a beautiful picture of moving forward in faith. And uh Paul, I think we're just going to change your name to Habakkuk, okay? Um Man, what 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 a what a journey. And 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 what a beautiful thing that you just continued to seek God in the midst of it. And and what a what a wonderful example for us all. Um I want to close with this as the worship team comes on up to to sing our last song. Um the final thing that Habakkuk does here uh, after he is honest to God and lays his heart out to God in the same way that Paul did, even with the news that he kept getting, he continued to move forward in faith. And then after hearing this from God, this devastating news that the Babylonians were coming in, listen to what Habakkuk does. He positions himself to hear from God. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. As you cry out to God, no matter what the circumstances are, move forward in your faith and then position yourself to hear from God. Listen to what he said. He says, I will stand at my watch and I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Let me challenge you. Position yourself to hear from God in the same way that Paul did. Make worship a priority. This is where we hear from Him like we have this morning. Stay in His Word. Seek counsel from trusted confidants. And look for His light in the midst of darkness. Father, thank you so much just for the reality of your presence. Lord, we wait here for you, and, and Lord, you show up. I thank you for Paul and, Lord, the work, the deep work that you have done and are doing and will do uh, in his life. We thank you for Jesus uh, as the ultimate hope we have, as the end of all judgment, that we might be forgiven and that we might walk freely for you for all eternity. Draw us, Lord. Into his likeness. We pray that prayer in his name. Amen. Amen.